I am a strong proponent of growth. I recognize the two-edged sword nature of it, but I believe that lack of growth is a one-edged sword. <laughs> it's going to totally going to hurt you. I believe that organizations uh, and, and, and maybe people, because organizations are, after all, made up of people, are either growing or dying. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of one or the other. Maybe there's a few people that can just get, get it perfectly stasis, but I don't think so. So I know at Riverside, we want to grow. I know our companies want to grow. And our job actually is to become stewards of, of good growth, productive growth, constructive growth. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Stuart Cole, the co-CEO of the Riverside Company, with headquarters here in Terminal Tower in Tower City. Riverside is a global private equity firm founded to invest in premier companies at the smaller end of the middle market. And since 1988, Riverside has invested in more than 960 companies globally, growing assets under management from $1 billion in 2004 to as much as $14 billion today under management, employing more than 300 people in offices across North America, Europe, and the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to his work at Riverside, Stewart was a vice president of Citicorp Venture Capital, the private equity arm of Citibank. And in addition to his work with Riverside, Stewart serves as an honorary trustee of Oberlin College and of the Cleveland Museum of Contemporary Art. He is on the board of directors of the Cleveland Clinic and co-chairs its $2 billion Power of Everyone Capital Centennial Campaign. Additionally, after spending 16 years as a heavy hitter participant in the Pan Mass Challenge Bicycle Fundraiser, Stewart founded Velosano, a similar event that has raised more than $20 million to fund cancer research since 2014, and kicking off the 2023 Bike to Cure event on September 8th and 9th. This was truly an insightful conversation, unpacking what Stewart's learned building an iconic investing franchise over the last few decades, spanning Riverside's tremendous growth, how to evaluate companies, helping companies grow, conscious capitalism and the positive power of private equity, managing LP relationships, Stewart's charitable pursuits, and Cleveland overall. So please enjoy my conversation with Stuart Cole after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. 
I, I was thinking about where the the best place to start might be, and I I used to work out of Tower City, uh, you know, in the heart of downtown, and and you know there was a co working space there and an accelerator on the the second floor of of Terminal Tower. So I I came across Riverside, I think, pretty early on into my own Cleveland journey passively, you know, hearing about the firm in in the lobby of of the building, but I I don't think candidly fully understanding what it was that that you were we were doing nor like aware of the, you know, formidable and sheer scale at, at which, you know, you guys were, were operating and the incredible growth uh, of the firm over time. But, but, but now that I am, I'm, I'm quite excited to learn more about, you know, Riverside, your, your own journey. So thank you for, for joining us. No, thanks for inviting me. I uh, appreciate the interest. I'd love to tell the story. Yeah. So it, with, with that said, for those who may not be currently familiar with Riverside and and what it is that that you do, what is what is Riverside and and what does the the company look like? Yeah, Jeffrey, I'll start at the highest level for your uh, listeners, which is that we are a private capital firm. Many of them, I think, probably deeply understand what that means. But for those who maybe are new to the world, when we read the financial press, when we listen uh, to the financial news. The stories are overwhelmingly about the biggest, most important public companies, and and they are uh, big and important. But behind them, beneath them, everywhere are the private companies. It's an extremely large portion of the economy. I'm a little biased, but I tend to think it's the most innovative part of the economy, and your own personal journey uh, demonstrates some of that. And um, kind of by definition, every public company was a private company once upon a time. (laughs) So, so firms like Riverside, and it's a big world today. It wasn't 35 years ago when we started, but today it's, a, it's, a, it's truly an industry. Private capital firms exist to provide capital in many forms to the many different types of private companies, uh, usually to help them grow, sometimes to help them turn around and, or, or fix a problem. But most, mostly it's, uh, it's forms of growth capital. And uh, it's called private capital because the companies we invest in are private and the funds we use to invest in them are raised in private offerings uh, from individual and institutional investors. And so if we turn back the, the clock and, and go back those 35 years or so, how is it that, that you came to find yourself pursuing this, this opportunity and kind of work? Yeah, uh, I, I would describe it as dumb luck. Um, and I would urge uh, your listeners not to try this at home. But uh, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, which I've done pretty much every day since college and would encourage folks to do. I was reading about these things. They used to be called leverage buyouts. Uh, this was a- around the same time that people like Gordon Gecko and Read is Good was coming out in the movies and Pretty Woman with Richard Gere and uh, oh, yeah. and Julia. Uh, and um I, I thought that world sounded really interesting. I, I thought I would love to be a part of it. Mind you, I had never taken a finance course. I obviously didn't have an MBA. I never had studied accounting. And, and I'm not exaggerating here. I could not spell EBITDA, which is a commonly used term in my world. But that didn't deter me from wanting to get involved in it. And through uh, tremendous good fortune, uh, dumb luck, uh, I was able to find a, a route in in the way that Citicorp hired me in 1987, sent me through a training program that was a seven-month program in New York, almost like a mini MBA, and then posted me here in Cleveland, Ohio, to um, begin to work uh, on these types of deals. So it was an incredible blessing. 
So knowing that the firm today operates on a scale of of billions of dollars under management and knowing that when you started, it, it was orders of magnitude less. If, if you think about the, the exponential growth that had to have occurred for you to produce that kind of trajectory, I'd love to go towards the, uh, the bottom left of that graph <laughs> and you know understand before it truly takes off, what were the origin of of that period uh, of the company and the kind of deals you were working on? What was, what was your mindset? What was your goal? Did you have a sense for, for what the firm would become today? Uh, I, I will, I promise to answer that question, but only after I uh, point out that I don't view our growth as exponential. I view it as very kind of uh, measured and logical, the magic of compounding. When you have 35 years to compound, even a 10 to 15% annual growth rate leads to a pretty good outcome. Uh, and that's, uh, we're, we're much more the tortoise than the hare. So let me um, answer your question, which was, I went to work at Citicorp 1987. I was hired. I started in 88, seven months training in New York, posted to Cleveland, um, spent five uh, great years at Citicorp uh, learning the business, applying my trade with the huge advantage of having uh, that Citicorp logo on my business card, which uh, opened many, many doors. During that period of time, I was um, in uh, close communication with a gentleman named Bela Sigethi. Bela and I had gone to, each had grown up in New Jersey in the 50s and 60s. We each had gone to Oberlin College in the 70s, and we actually each worked at Citicorp in the 80s. But in 1988, Bela courageously left a real job and at his dining room table (laughs) overlooking the Hudson River and Riverside Drive in Manhattan, founded the Riverside Company. So he's he's truly our founder. Perhaps you should be interviewing him, not me, but he's in New York and I'm here in Cleveland. Almost from the beginning, we talked about joining forces, but as I said, I I had a great gig at at Citi. But um, Citi struggled in the early 90s after the first Gulf War recession and particularly some real estate issues. Long story short, they closed down the Cleveland office. So my options with Citi would have been in New York or Chicago. And strangely enough, I didn't want to leave Cleveland. So Bale and I agreed to to join forces, he was mag- in addition to being courageous, he's magnanimous. So he said, um, mm. "Come and be my partner. We'll be 50-50 partners." Even though he had been toiling in the fields already for almost five years and had already done a couple of deals, one very successful deal. But that began the partnership in 1993. So for the last 30 years, we have been co-CEOs and 50-50 partners. When I joined, when when Bela started the firm, he didn't have any real money, so he did small deals. When I left Citicorp, I didn't have any real money, so I continued to do those small deals. Together through the decade of the 90s, we, we did about 30 of these little deals, a combination of platforms and add-ons. And for those of, of, of your listeners who are old enough to remember the 90s, it was a great decade. <laughs> uh, our deals worked, and and by the way, just about everybody's deals worked in the 90s. It was a very, it was a very easy time to make money. And by the end of the 90s, we, we had established ourselves in a place where we could have that kind of long-term growth up and to the right that you were suggesting. But that, those, those were the, the early days, and they were exciting and heady and fun and scary and risky. And there was a lot, a, a lot more dumb luck and a lot of great good fortune and a lot of ways in which um, it might not have worked. And I'm, I'm uh, mindful of that almost every day. Tell us a little bit more about the the co CEO model there and, and how 
how you've made that work effectively and, and at different stages of the company's life cycle? I'll start out by saying it's been a blessing for me. What I find so interesting about it is, you know, my answer would be that I'm, I'm both happier and wealthier because of it. And if you were to do the podcast with Bela again, which you should, he, I think, would give the same answer. And the reason I like to focus on that is because it points out something that, that, that we believe strongly and we believe we, uh, is that in many ways at the heart of Riverside, which is that we don't believe in zero sum games. We, we believe in virtuous circles. We believe in, um, everybody can, uh, we, we love win, win, wins and always try to find those opportunities. We, we particularly hate lose, lose, loses. So the co-CEO component, the 50-50, being 50-50 partners that Bela offered was, was in retrospect brilliant because it, it means we're truly aligned and kind of forced to agree. The co-CEO part really speaks to governance. And what I would say is that uh, it requires a high degree of communication between the two of us. We don't always agree at first, although we do a, a high percentage of the time. And when we don't, we just keep talking about it. Eventually, almost always, we end up agreeing. And in those rare instances where we don't, then we figure out a way to make the decision. You could um, do paper, stone, uh, rock. You could do um, roll the dice. We, we, we have a kind of a, a view that who knows more about that particular subject or topic or question? Who cares more about it? And um, if, if we really tried to agree and we, we still don't agree, then whoever knows more and cares more should make the decision. And we should both live with it as if it was a unanimous decision. So that, that has worked well. You know, it's interesting in, in private capital firms like Riverside, there's a hot, there's a fairly significant number of co's, co-CEOs. I'm not familiar with it existing well in many other industries. And I, I often think about why that might be. I think part of it is because the firms tend to start very small, very organic, and it makes sense to grow up together. But I also think it's because the nature of our work is, is all about judgment. Uh, what company do we buy? And, you know, how much we pay for it? Who should run it? What should the strategy be? When should we sell it? There, there are no clearly right or wrong answers. It's all judgment. So having more than one person to judge is likely to lead to a better judgment. Uh, and, um, I think other firms have found that too. So, uh, to, to pick on a firm like uh, KKR that is extremely well recognized in our industry, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of assets under management. Um, the, the, the KKR founders are now executive chairs. They no longer run the firm day to day, but they've been succeeded by two people, Scott Nuttall and Joseph I, who each grew up we started at the firm at the same time, grew up together. It's almost another partnership founding story that is very much fits the culture. Hmm. Understanding there are no right or wrong answers, and it's it's an exercise of, of judgment. When you think about you know evaluation criteria, the ingredients that that actually make for the the best Riverside perspective opportunity. You know, hypothetically, if if I had every single eligible, let's say, company on the 
the smaller end of the middle market, you know, your, your, your strike zone in the world together in one room. And uh, I wanted to arrange them in this room from lowest quality to highest quality. Understand, you know, they're, they're not all created equal. So if you think about the spectrum from, you know, bad to good to great, how, how is that spectrum itself defined? You know, what is an ideal company from your perspective, the, the qualities boiled down that are, are most critical when you're, when you're evaluating a yeah. business? Yeah. And it's hard because everything matters, but, but I yeah. think there are some <laughs> things that, that matter more than others. Look, we, we always um, start with what I call efficacy. It's not always exactly the right word, but is this company providing a product or a service that works? works for its customers, works for the broader world. If it doesn't, it might have some success for a period of time, but it's not likely to be long-term sustainable. Second, does the company exhibit uh, good values? We have observed over the 35 years and soon to be thousand companies we've invested in that there is a direct correlation between the the value systems of the company we invest in and the success of the investment, which is really interesting to me because the word values and valuation have the same root. Somebody figured that out a long time ago. So we we care a lot about about values. And um, the most extreme and ugliest form of poor values is is getting defrauded, which has happened to us a, a handful of times. And out of a thousand that people maybe don't like to hear this, but there are bad actors and fraud exists everywhere in the world um, in very, to some degree, uh, hopefully not much. And we've gotten pretty good at, uh, at sniffing it out. The market in which the company operates in, not just the big market, but the subsector it operates in becomes critical. And here we have a, a bit of a tension because being a small, I love the fact that you use small end of the middle market. That's, a, that's how we describe our strike zone. Those companies, we only want to invest in companies of that size, but we want them to be very important in their industry. And there's an inherent contradiction between those two things. So by definition, we're looking for niches. But if it's just a small niche that has no growth potential, if there are no adjacencies, if you're not going to have a strong tailwind, then you're going to buy a small company and sell a slightly less small company. And that's not a recipe for success. We want to buy a small company and sell a medium to big size company. So we're looking for a strong tailwind. We're looking for a big enough area, but we still want to matter at the beginning uh, in in our little world. Um, Then you get into, you know, just a lot of analysis, uh, financials. Well, I should say before that, a quality of management. We have hired so many C-suite executives that you could say, you know, don't worry about it because the company doesn't have the right management. You can, you'll, you'll, you'll hire them. But that I think ignores the reality that if you're buying a company that doesn't have at least the, the beginnings of a strong team, it's a long journey to get there. The beginnings could be a strong CEO that needs people around her. Uh, the beginnings could be uh, some very good people on a team and a CEO that did a good job to this point, but isn't the right person to take it to the next, next level. But there has to be some amount of management first. 
And then you get into, you know, does it have the right systems and data and people, uh, people below the C-suite and all the financial analysis we do and all yeah. of that terribly important, mm-hmm. but didn't get those first ingredients right. It's going to be really hard to make it up with everything else. I, it makes a, makes a ton of sense. It, it brings me at least to think about the, the, the inverse, what would be I'm not sure exactly what what you call it, but the the negative screening list. You, you know, you mentioned things you would you would sniff out, right? So if you've given us these characteristics that that you look for, could you touch on some of the things that would be red flags? And maybe it's you know entire industries or or styles of company, but but what gives you pause? So there are industries that that we we just won't touch for um, sort of principled reasons, so tobacco and firearms, gambling, but that's a you know that's a very small subset. There are other industries we won't touch because um, we touched them and it was like a hot stove. We, we just didn't, <laughs> didn't feel very good. Some um, lessons learned. And yeah, and, and, and we avoid uh, those. Um, we, we also have had situations. Um, concentrations in any form are risky. So uh, the most obvious one is a customer concentration uh, where one customer is, is too high a percentage of sales. That's a, uh, We've been burned when that customer changed its mind. Even one vendor being too high a percentage of your sales creates a dependency uh, that we don't like. So that that's important. On the positive side, we love recurring revenue. I grew up the son of a, of a salesman. So my father would go out every day and if he sold something, he came home in a good mood and we had a nice dinner and life was good. If he came home, didn't sell anything. Not so much. So when when we began investing and started to stumble on businesses that have genuinely recurring revenue, and I'll, I'll list some in a moment, for me, it was like an epiphany. I mean, mm. even if we didn't sell anything today, we're going to get a bunch of revenue tomorrow. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. And it turns out that recurring revenue exists in many forms. And the entrepreneurs listening to this podcast you know, are, are likely thinking about business models that bring recurring revenue. The most obvious one in today's world would be SaaS businesses, software businesses with their with their beautiful monthly recurring revenue. We yeah. love franchisors with the franchisee pays a royalty. Uh, we love online forms of training, particularly where it's required to get a job, keep a job, get a promotion, get a raise, and you pay for a, a subscription to get that type of training. That's a, a form of recurring revenue. So, it, so again, it exists in, in a lot of ways in a lot of places. And, and when you find it, you know, put simply, those companies are more valuable than companies that don't have recurring revenue. So just give me some ideas of some, some uh, pros and cons, things of, of beauty and, and less beauty that we look for. So once you've worked through a formal partnership with a company, you know, they've, they've met the bar for your evaluation criteria, and you're you're opting to to work with them. Uh, I feel like a, most of the work might might come from there. <laughs> you know, after after you vetted them and and have this alignment, what does the rest of the process look like when you think about you know unlocking value f- with within these companies? Yeah, so so obviously you know from the time we we think this is a good opportunity to the time we actually wire the funds and close is a there's a whole complicated process there which we can talk about. But put simply. That's what our folks do brilliantly. We, we have excellent processes because we've done it almost a thousand times uh, successfully. 
I'm very proud of the way we go about that. And then even before we close, we start to transition to think about what we're going to be doing with this business post-close and how can we hit the ground running? How can we get a, a quick start? And most importantly in that is, is our add-on acquisitions. It's very typical that one of our platforms will do one, two, four, even 10 or 20 add-ons during our period of ownership. When I talked about us you know, buying small companies and wanting to sell less small companies, <laughs> add-ons is an important way that we achieve that. So we're going to have, we have a, a, a incredible global origination team, 20 people whose full-time job at Riverside all day, every day is to go out and find our deals. They last year found 5,000 opportunities for us. They're already going to start looking now for companies which might be an add-on to the next platform we're going to, we're going to close. Meanwhile, we have um, identified an operating partner from a stable of about 70 that we have working with Riverside. Um, who's going to be the key point person on a day-to-day basis. Our view of the world is that the folks who are really good at uh, all the things we've been talking about so far are not necessarily the best people once you close, and now you need to run a real business. I used to do it uh, when I was at Citicorp, you know, the day after we closed, and I was responsible for that investment, and I used to call it playing store. Because I would be, you know, trying to tell management what they should do in difficult situations, even though I had never really done it. Right. So um, <laughs> now we hire these 70 folks and they come from industry. They've run companies of the size and ilk we invest in. And they don't, they don't want to be the CEO, but they want to make the CEO highly successful. And they're, they're compensated for doing just that. So that's um, a key part of, of what we do. We've developed a, wide variety of uh, alpha tools. If your listeners are familiar with the concept of alpha versus beta, this is sort of the unique ways that we can add value to an investment. It includes everything from a pooled purchasing program where we buy paper clips and FedEx and healthcare as a whole rather than individually saving over $10 million a year doing that. It includes um, Riverside University, which is a training program that we put together for the uh, C-suites of of, uh, leaders of our companies. Uh, It includes some remarkably uh, detailed and effective approaches to growing revenue organically, which is the other side of how we go from being small to less small, um, is by trying to juice up the organic growth rate which um, uh, anybody who's who started a business, run, run a business, grown a business knows is extremely challenging, but almost always involves the need to hire more salespeople, come up with better approaches to compensating them, offering them a better technology and systems to, to um, track leads and to find the next customer, developing the personas and the sales pitches and the scripts and the on and on. It's detailed day-to-day heavy lifting. It's work. It's why I don't do it. <laughs> but we have people that have spent their careers doing that and bring that expertise to the companies that we invest in. So with that foundation kind of laid for, you know, the the, the focus of, of Riverside and, and the work it is you're doing, if you think more holistically about it, what, what does success mean to you? You know, where, where are you trying to take this organization and, and you know, both personally and and professionally, 
what is the impact that you're you're hoping to have here in in retrospect? Yeah, so it starts with uh, delighting our our investors because they are our most important customers and if we don't delight them, they won't invest in our next fund and if they don't invest in our next fund, we're going to be uh, on a slow descent. So um uh that means delivering uh, consistently good returns and and finding ways to make distributions even in difficult markets and we're keenly aware of they are our our bosses. But I don't think that's enough. I think it's also very important that the companies we invest in feel like we are great partners, that we've helped them uh, to grow and succeed. And when we do, and there's a particularly, say, an exit that and returns a, uh, tr- provides tremendous uh, returns to the, to the management team, to the community they operate in, uh, that's something we celebrate. And um, it's, it's, a, it's something we're very proud of. We spend a lot of time thinking about what kind of career we can offer to our own folks. Uh, Bale and I feel like we've had this amazing 35-year run, and we'd love to believe that Riverside might be around for 35 years more. We might not be, but what, what kind of opportunities is it going to present to folks we hired um, 15, 20, 25 years ago, who are still, many of them still there, but also, what's, what opportunity is going to be for the person we hired last Tuesday? I, I'd like to believe that, you know, I don't know that they're going to have the opportunity to become co-CEO, but I'd like to believe they're going to have the opportunity to have a great career and um, spend it at Riverside if, if that's what they would like to do. And again, we're, we, we, we just love the fact that so many people have chosen to invest their careers with Riverside. That's a big decision, you know, they're, they work for us from 25 to 50 or beyond. They're not going to. They're not going to be 25 again. <laughs> they're not going to be 35 again. They, they gave us some precious time, and I would like to believe they 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 felt they made a great decision in doing that. Sometimes the communities benefit too, and um, that's very pleasing to us. We, even though Bale and I went to Oberlin College, we we're, we're kind of died in the wool capitalists. We, we believe free enterprise is a good thing. It's lifted billions out of poverty, and that's a, I'm not exaggerating. Those are the facts. It's far from perfect. It has a lot of imperfections, in fact, and we'd like to see it become more perfect, but it, it really does work. And when it works, everybody should benefit. It goes back to that concept of win-win-wins. So, so we, we worry a lot about ESG environments, environmental, social, and governance. If folks are familiar with that, people often refer to it as sustainability. That's very important to us as well. And uh, we recently became part of uh, an organization that could almost become a movement. It's called Ownership Works. And it was started by um, somebody out of KKR, the firm I mentioned before, doing big successful deals and thought there was an opportunity to make capitalism even better and generate better returns by giving more of the employees or ideally all of the employees of the companies they invest in uh, a stake and a piece of the ownership. Yeah, He's had success with that. Pete Stavros is his name. He's uh, promoting that across our industry and we're uh, very proud to be one of the founding organizations and to be working now to, towards having our first companies that would follow this model. And Bail and I hope it proves that it creates that bigger win-win-win. 
we added one yeah. one more win to that equation. Absolutely, I mean, that, that's like a ideal way to align incentives and and implement you know the actual mechanism to to realize positive sum practices. Exactly. I definitely want to circle back to the point about investors as your stakeholders and the point about growth on the company side. But but in the in the spirit of how it is that you think about your own success holistically in this positive sum mentality, I'd love to hear about Velisano and yeah. if you could share a little bit about you know the work that that you're doing there, the founding story, if you will, you know how it is that you came to be interested in that and ultimately starting it. Thank you, Jeffrey, for asking. And if this was a video cast, not a podcast, you, you would be seeing me <laughs> smile broadly now. I, I can confirm that, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and 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 you, you would say to yourself, why in the world would you smile when you're talking about cancer? So let, let me try to explain. All of us, I say confidently, are are have been or are touched by cancer. That's the euphemism. We're touched by it. Nobody nobody gets touched by cancer. You get clobbered by it. It's something that we all worry about. So we, you know, we, we go for the, the annual mammography, every five-year colonoscopy, or we try to manage our, our exercise and our diet. We, we're always playing defense and we're always living in fear of it. Velosano started as a, an event, a bite, we call it Bike to Cure. It's growing beyond just being an event into, towards being a, a cause or a movement, which is to uh, raise money to do cutting edge life-saving cancer research uh, now here in Cleveland, funding the, the brilliant doctors and scientists we have at, at the Cleveland Clinic and other organizations locally. And it's something that uh, we started 10 years ago with tremendous support from the Cleveland Clinic and has grown to be, uh, I, I believe, a truly community-wide event. This year we'll have um, hopefully 2,500 riders and uh, well, uh, last last year we had close to that number and raised six point nine million dollars. So I hope we'll raise even more in this our tenth anniversary. And the most significant part of Elisano is the Bike to Cure weekend that will be September eighth and ninth. Uh, we'll leave from right downtown in Mall B on Saturday the ninth. On Friday evening the eighth, there's a fantastic kickoff party. Tremendous energy and spirit, great music and food, a lot of a lot of fun as we watch the sunset over Lake Erie and think about the the cause that we're a part of. On ride day, people can ride anywhere from six miles to a hundred miles. They go out to their friends and family and ask for pledges, and people are very generous and will ultimately have thirty thousand or more donors contributing to that six point nine million dollars or more. And the work that we're doing is finding cures. It's finding pieces. I like to think of them as pieces of that, the world's uh, largest, most complicated, most challenging, most difficult jigsaw puzzle ever. And every time we fund a research study that comes up with a finding, it might be one more piece of that puzzle. And if you've done jigsaw puzzles, every time you find the corners and find the borders and start to fill in the middle. It, it goes slowly at first, but each piece generally leads to, oh, I now I see where that goes. And, and by the end, you almost can't put down the pieces fast enough. And that's what I believe is going to happen with cancer research. We're just going to keep finding these pieces and each one will, will unlock the next ones. And when the story of how cancer was conquered, and that doesn't necessarily it may not be the polio model where, you know, 
we all take a sugar cube and it goes away. But but it's no longer a death sentence. When we reach that day, and we have in, in some areas already, I, I hope Cleveland and Velosana will be a, a small chapter in, in the book of, of how that occurred. And that would be something I would be very proud of. Meanwhile, I love to ride. So <laughs> that's, that's why I'm smiling. I'm having a ton of, you know, I'm having a ton of fun. And I would say that if you join us, and I hope you will on, on, on September 8th and 9th and, and interview the people that are part of this, uh, they would tell you it's one of the most fun weekends of the year. Well, that, that's amazing. It's really uh, inspiring work. And I, I hope, uh, you know, it, it is part of that, that history of, of how we conquer this thing. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks for helping to promote it. Absolutely. I'll circle back to, and I do want to touch on both of those, but, but let's talk about growth for, for a little bit. Um, right. So obviously these tend to be more mature businesses, or at least they've been around for a little while and a little bit lower growth re- relative to, you know, the, the kind of world that I'm operating in with, you know, these high flying, you know, venture backed early stage startups. And I think people tend to think about, you know, growth as a good thing, all else equal. But I, I know, and I'm, I'm sure you do as well, that it can create, you know, challenges and, and problems along the way. And so I'd, I'd love to just hear your perspective on, on growth as, a, as an idea. So I, I am a strong proponent of growth. I recognize the two-edged sword nature of it, but I believe that lack of growth is a one-edged sword. <laughs> it's going <laughs> only going to hurt you. I believe that organizations, uh, and, and, and maybe people, because organizations are, after all, made up of people, are either growing or dying. It's it's kind of it's kind of one or the other. Maybe there's a few people that can just get get it perfectly stasis, but I don't think so. So I know at Riverside we want to grow. I know our companies want to grow, and our job actually is to become stewards of of good growth, productive growth, constructive growth, and mostly we're successful at that. We're mindful of of, of the challenges of growth. And mindful of um, not becoming a victim of your own success in a way, but but I I am when, when we go back and, and analyze our successful deals and we do a lot of introspection at Riverside, all of our successful deals always have in common that the fact that we were successful growing the company. Is there a a single change that you've made to a, a business after? investing in it that that stands out in in memory as just outsizely impactful so i mentioned that we hire a lot of people o- over the history of riverside it's there's a lot of examples of companies that were doing well before but did uh, extraordinarily after we hired somebody the right somebody maybe more starkly there are companies that were going the wrong direction and we're turned around when we hired the right somebody or somebody's. One of my mentors was a chap named Mort Mandel. He's a Clevelander, best known for, with his brothers Jack and Joseph, founding Premier Industrial, a highly successful company, and ultimately endowing Parkwood and the Mandel Foundation that, that does so much good. And uh, he, he wrote a little book. He was fond of saying it's all about the who. That's the title of his book. It's a very easy read. It's a, kind of a memorable read. And I agree with him. Those are the most important things that, that we do at the companies. I talked about some of the systems we helped to implement. And then I talked about those add-on acquisitions. And 
we've turned what would have been, you know, okay deals or good deals into uh, extraordinary deals uh, with the right add-on acquisitions. If you had to pick one company that, that you've encountered in this whole journey, and I just got to give you the keys to it, I'm curious, you know, what, what business, you know, just holistically do, do you love the most <laughs> uh, that in perpetuity you would want to own and run that you are aware of? First of all, I, I, I have to say I love all of, of our company people. <laughs> They're all beautiful in their own ways. But but two companies stand out over our years, and I think you'll quickly see why. One of them is a company that's now called Neighborly. When we met it, it was called the Dwyer Group. It's a franchisor of um, home repair, home maintenance businesses. You, you wouldn't have heard of the holding company, uh, Neighborly, but Hopefully, you might have heard of its brands, Mr. Electric, Mr. Reuter. Um, sure. They've helped me with my plumbing before. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> so millions of times a year, one of the employees of one of the franchisees goes into somebody's home and fixes or maintains something. And when they do, we get a piece of the, that from the royalty stream. So it's a beautiful business model. We had the privilege of being investors in um, Neighborly from when we met the company, it was a small publicly traded company. We partnered with the family and uh, management team to take it private. We grew it through two successful holds and as a uh, controlling investor and then one more as a minority investor. And not too long ago, um, after about 20 years, gave up all of our ownership, but still re- remain a, a huge uh, fans and close to the folks uh, at that company. And we saw how a company could go from being uh, valued at, at, at under 100 million to being valued at in, in, the, in the multiple billions uh, mm. and how it had created so much good along the way for its own management team, for its franchisees, for the communities it operates in. And, and going back to our discussion of values, that, that company had one of the strongest codes of values that, that we had ever come across and it translated into tremendous valuation. A little closer to home, not too far from where I'm sitting right now, there's a business called N2Y, and it's in the business of providing uh, digitally online curricula that uh, special education teachers would use. And I'll simply say, God bless special education teachers. It's a, it's a, it takes a special person, a kind of a saint to, to, to do it and be good at it. And they need all the help they can get. And one, one of them, a special education teacher, came up with the brilliant idea of creating this online curriculum that they all could use. And I would be happy to talk at great, greater length about it, but it, it took off because it is a better solution. We met the company when it was still being run by the founder, but we're part of the process through two whole periods of transitioning it from, um, being a founder run to being run by the daughter of the founder and with, with significant family participation to ultimately being run on a, a purely professional management and growing every year, every step of the way and making a lot of um, children more uh, functional, making a lot of uh, teachers more effective and making our investors um, a lot of money as the company went from a valuation of, of around a hundred million to over a billion. So, and that, that company is, is a, a wonderful Northeast Ohio success story. And mm. I would love to see more of those types of great success stories. 
So I'll, I'll, I'll pull on the uh, investor thread there. You know, we, we've talked a lot about on the, the business and investing and operating side of it, but obviously the, the providers of, of capital are, are key here too. They're kind of essentially the, the fuel to, to doing the, the work that, that you do. So with that, you know, what have you learned about building and managing those kind of great relationships? I'm sure over the course of, of Riverside's history, there's been good ones, challenging ones, a whole spectrum of relationships with, with LPs. You know, what do you think about the ones that worked, you know, really well, uh, where they've been more challenging? What, what, what is your perspective on, on managing, you know, the LP relationship? Yeah, it's, it's an important part of of what we do, of what I do. We have a team of folks that are, have, have uh, investor relations in their titles, but in some sense, every one of Riverside's 350 plus folks are in the investor relations business. And, you know, Jeffrey, I, I would say it simply comes down to uh, trust and communication. The, the LPs need to trust us. And some people trust easily and some people are skeptical. And I think there's by nature a correlation between investors, great investors and skepticism, because everybody's coming and pitching them all the time, of how great they're yeah. going to be. Nobody ever comes in and says that oh, this, this could be this could be a pretty pretty bad investment. So we have to really uh, be be skeptical. So we have to earn their trust. Trust is earned, a kind of a, a just a a drop of of water at a time, and it's it you know it's lost by the bucket full of, by by missteps. And then that's where communication is so important. If 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 we're telling investors what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, we're doing it truthfully. They're going to accept the fact that not everything we do works because they're good investors and they know not everything works. But if they feel they've been misled or lied to or, you know, God forbid, that's, that, that's not acceptable. Uh, and now we're, now we're in a world of hurt. So that communication just becomes uh, so very important. Along the way, we've developed some remarkable friendships uh, with our investors. We've found ways, other ways to succeed together. And I value that too. And, and, I, and I treasure some of those relationships. But for, the, for most of them, it really just simply comes down to they've been pleased with the returns, they trust us, and they feel like the communication is, is, is uh, open and candid. Uh, the word of the day today is transparent. I try not to use that word because it's kind of lost all meaning, but they want to believe that they're hearing the good news, yes, but they're hearing the bad news even faster. On a related note, you know, I, I think one of the the great features of, of what it is that you're doing is that it is a double opt-in process. You know, you, you can't just hit buy, right? Someone also has to hit sell at, at the same time. And so negotiation and, and sales become far more important in, in your world than they would be in, you know, public equities where you can just acquire ownership. And so I'm curious what, what you, what you've learned about, you know, those two things, negotiation and, and sales. I mean, you've mentioned, you know, the firm has done over a thousand transactions of, of this nature. So I'm, I'm sure the lessons are, are many. Well, we'll soon do our thousand. So we're, we're just about there. Um, Almost there. Yeah. There, there are some commonalities with investors. Again, there's a levels of trust and communication that need to be established and, and established pretty quickly. You don't have years. Every now and then we find a company, we meet the owner, we keep in touch for years and eventually invest. But mostly it happens over a 
six, nine, 12 month type of period. So you don't have, you don't have as long a period of time to build trust, but it, but it, it, it is equally important uh, in these relationships. I think it comes back to what I, I talked about with, with win-win. So you're, you're right. It takes two to tango. The, the, the seller has to want to sell. The buyer has to want to buy. The price has to clear for each of them. So are you um, willing and able and open to listening and finding ways to, to get to yes, ways to find the win-wins? Because if you don't, you're not going to, it's going to be very hard to, to, you know, you, anybody can do a deal or two, but if you want to do a, this on a regular, on a serial basis, if you want to go from it being a hobby to a business, then you have to become skilled at that. And, and, um, that is the work that's typically done by our partners. And these are folks who have been at Riverside generally for over 10 years and some cases over 15 or 20 years. And this is something they've gotten really good at. They've gotten really good at not just the ability to identify which deals are going to be the winners, but then winning those deals. And that sometimes means winning the hearts and minds of the sellers who love these businesses like their own children in many cases. In fact, I, I think I've seen a few cases where they love them more than their own children. So um, it, it becomes a, a really critical uh, skill set. And you're going back to, to, to investors. One, one thing I want to give is maybe a tangible example. Uh, yeah. Years ago, decades ago, at our annual investors conference, we started the tradition of having a segment called Lessons from the Lou. Lou is mm. the British word for bathroom. And if you yep. visit a Riverside office, you'll see a little poster hanging up in the bathroom and we'll have uh, a list of uh, deals that didn't work and why they didn't work. We call them lessons from the loo. And if you work at Riverside, uh, you'd prefer not to have your deals hanging in the in the wall of the bathroom. I I've got a couple which I didn't. So um, so it, it turns out investors love that. I mean, we you know we're, we're there with them all day, telling them about how the funds are doing, and we made you you know this much money on the, that deal and this much on that deal. And then we have this little set, segment of 10, 10 or fifteen minutes. We just talk about. Lessons from the loop. Sometimes we call it what were we thinking? And people like that segment more than all the other segments, even though we're telling them how we lost their money. So I think that's an example of communication and, and candid being of candor. I mean, it, it, I think it makes a, a ton of sense. I, I'm curious from those, those lessons from the loop. Are there, are there particular mistakes that, that stand out in memory? And, and how do you think about, you know, the, the aphorism, you know, avoiding the, the same mistakes twice and, and kind of reincorporating the learnings back into the, the DNA, if you will, of, of Riverside? You know, I think, I think it's a lot like the way tribes work. Um, mm. You know, they, they tell stories. We don't have children in our meetings. We're very opposed to child labor anywhere in the world. But uh, we do have young people that might be just out of college or new, new, new to this industry. And we promote that same candor talk about what went wrong and we try to help have them find new and creative ways to lose money, not to fall trapped to the old tired ways that we did. Again, being very, doing a lot of introspection, being very candid, telling those stories, I think is, is the most important part. And a, 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 a culture that promotes low turnover maximizes the likelihood that somebody will say, wait a minute, I, I saw that movie before and it didn't end very well. 
Throughout the conversation, you have, I think, mentioned what I would bucket under mentors and inspiration for yourself uh, and for the firm in the form of other firms and people in your life. You know, how do you think about mentorship? And and maybe a, a fun addendum to that question is if uh, if you had to give all your capital in the world to another investor who does not work at Riverside and never worked at Riverside, who, who would you give it to and why? Yeah, I've been hugely blessed by mentors. I, I mentioned uh, Mort, but he was just one. I mentioned Vela, my partner, and I certainly have learned so much from him. A chap named Harvey Siegelbaum, who I've known for for over 40 years, a chap named Graham Hearns, a wonderful Clevelander I work with, um, and so many other people I work with um, every day and, and have learned from. To me, mentorship is, is a very natural product of the world, and we, we all have been mentored and we all should want to mentor others. I, there are some formal organizations that, that, that I think do fantastic work in the area of mentorship and particularly in providing mentorship to people that come out of um, communities and with backgrounds where they wouldn't otherwise have access to those resources. And if people have the, the time and inclination to get involved in that, I think it's an incredible uh, blessing, incredible mitzvah to be able to, to do that. But I'm also just talking about the normal mentorship that happens, uh, you know, in ways big and small every day in, in life. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a great thing. In terms of uh, my money, uh, I'll give you uh, and who would manage it, I'll give you an answer that hopefully is true to the spirit of what you're asking, if, even if it's not to the letter. Which is obviously I've had to make provisions and think about what happens uh, after I'm no longer able to um, be at Riverside. My plan is my money would I continue to invest with Riverside because I believe very much in the people and the machine and the processes um, that that we invest with and I literally can't think of I, I certainly there's, there's certainly not one I know as well um, but yeah. I also can't think of one that I would be more confident of its ability over the long term to uh, produce some good or great results ah, no, I, I love that answer actually I have one more question and then we'll we'll close it out here I, again something that that you've brought up I think, if not explicitly, implicitly throughout the conversation, which is private capital as as a force for for good, mm. and at and, and you know one of the you know proverbial narratives is is private equity. Let's say doesn't always get the best reputation. You know, with regards to to what happens to companies after the transaction closes, maybe control ownership, cost cutting, and I, I think you know you've again introduced the ingredients here with positive sum thinking and, and kind of win-win-win situations, but, and even, even the concept of, of, of conscious capitalism and alignment of incentives, but h- how do you think about PE as a, as a force for good and, and, and how, you know, do you combat that, that kind of narrative? Yeah. Unfortunately, private equity does not enjoy the best reputation. And some of that is, is probably earned by bad behavior. And I certainly am aware that there's been some bad behavior. For me, most of that was decades ago. I I believe that the marketplace has mostly rooted out the bad actors and the people in private equity today, even if they're not by nature inclined, they've they've realized that their reputation will precede them. So if if they lie or cheat or steal, it's 
it's, the word's going to get out very quickly. And guess what? Nobody's going to want to invest with them. Nobody's going to work for them. Nobody's going to want to sell their companies to them. And it's not, right, not right. And well, to, to your point about trust lost in buckets. Exactly. But Bail and I, and, and I dare say most or all of us at Riverside have seen that we've seen with our own two eyes the good work of private equity. We've seen it uh, grow and create jobs and innovate and uh, help companies to succeed beyond their imaginations. So not every time, not perfectly, not every day, nothing works that way. But over time and for the most part and with some spectacular outcomes. So that leads all of us to be Real, you know, to really be big believers uh, in in the power of it through things like ownership works. I would like to believe that when we look at private equity, uh, private capital, ten years from now, will it will be even more clear how we are doing this. And I would like to, in particular, do it in ways that would lead some of public policymakers, some uh, public opinion makers. We seem to be stuck in the 70s or 80s or 90s to to see the good work that is being done. In fact, I'm fond of saying that if we didn't have private capital, I, I could imagine people standing up in, 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 in wells of Congress saying, let's use government money to create some pools of capital to invest in companies and help them grow. Which is exactly what we're doing, but we're doing with 100% private capital with no need for a government subsidy. And by the way, I think a lot of those calls wouldn't be coming from the right side of the aisle. They'd be coming from the left side of the aisle. It's a, it's a very interesting situation. I, I view myself as being uh, progressive in a sense. And I truly believe that there's no contradiction between that and the good work that we are doing uh, at Riverside and, and more broadly in, in, pro with, in private capital. Mm. Uh, that's awesome. Well, with that, I'll ask you our uh, traditional closing question, which is for your favorite hidden gem in the area, something that other folks may not know about, but p perhaps they should. Yeah, so boy, it, it, I, I love Cleveland and it's hard to pick one. If you're a cyclist, the cycling is amazing. So I have to cite the Metro Parks, but I also do stand up paddle boarding. And if your folks have not been on the Cuyahoga or Lake Erie recently, get out there, fall in. Your, your skin won't get a rash. You won't uh, get sick. It's amazing. And then the food scene here is, uh, is really, um, you know, people compare us favorably to some of the really cutting edge uh, cities if you're a foodie. We're really, really lucky that way. And on the, the food thread, I, I realize didn't get to talk about it, but I, I do want to publicly on the record say that I am a, a huge fan of Tate's. Ah. So I am, I am grateful for your, your work there. Yeah, we, <laughs> we no longer own the company. We're very proud of the role we played there. That uh, the woman that founded it, Kathleen, uh, was a, a wonderful entrepreneur, an incredible baker. And together we created a, an important company that continues to just excel. Well, Stuart, I just, I just want to thank you again for, for taking the time to, to come on and share more about your story, Riverside story, Felisano, and, and, and all the work that you're doing. So, Jeffrey, thank you. Really a pleasure. If people had anything they wanted to follow up with about volunteering, investing, otherwise, you know, what, what, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so on Riverside, uh, www.riversidecompany.com. 
Uh, we have a place you can submit your thoughts and we will respond to them. Maybe more to the point because it's some urgency a month from today. We'll be kicking off Velosano 10. And that is www.velosano.org, V-E-L-O-S-A-N-O.org. Literally everybody can participate. You can ride, you can be a virtual rider, you can uh, volunteer or donate. And it doesn't matter whether you live in Cleveland or Northeast Ohio or Ohio or the USA or, or overseas, our 30,000 donors come from everywhere. We're building a movement to play offense against, uh, against cancer. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank, thank you again. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.